Hey, Gee, I know you are a huge Twitter fan. Twitterati, are you bailing on Twitter now that Mr. Musk has purchased it? What's your, what are your Twitter plans? I am not. I'm staying on Twitter. You know, I, whatever. I'm willing, this is our banter section. So banter we're section. All day let, to here, talk let about me banter this. you. You you must like conspiracy theories, Guy. Uh, do I? Uh, <laughs> I feel like I don't. Oh, because you're right. saying that there's going to be more conspiracy theories on Twitter. I mean, yeah. moderate your own content. I don't know what to tell you. All right. So you'll still there's, the there's a block, there's a filter, there's a mute. You okay. don't like it. You can create your own filter bubble. That's my social network app, new app. It's called Filter, Filter Bubble. Bubble. You just, it's, or no, I'm, I'm going to call it Echo Chamber. You could call it Do Your Own Research. You could. That's too long. That's not catchy enough, Conrad. You're a marketing right. person. Come on. What are we talking about today, Conrad? All right. Beyond Elon Musk. We've got a great show for you today. This is a really good one. Uh, again, I spent a lot of time putting this together. We're actually going to also be launching a behind the scenes so you can see what it took to put this together. As always, we're going to cover legal marketing news, which there is a lot of, um, a lot of salient stuff at the beginning of the show. And we got a great comment on our post on YouTube, one of our YouTube posts. So we're going to get deeper into metrics. Someone was asking about how to actually build out these metrics. So we're going to go deep on that comment. Following up on our Clear Legal Trends Report review, we're going to go into business models and the demand for different business models by consumers of the legal industry and the digging in of the heels among the legal industry to adopt those changes. And finally, to put you all to bed, Guy is going to do his favorite book review. All right, that's what we got going on. Let's hit the music. Welcome to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing, teaching you how to promote, market, and make fat stacks for your legal practice, here on Legal Talk Network. All right, all right, all right. We have got a jam-packed show. So, as always, we're going to start out with the news. And what news segment wouldn't be appropriate without us talking about Google? Guy and I went back and forth for a long time to like, how can we get Google out of this? Because people don't want to talk about Google all the time. But today is not the day. We've got two items coming out of Google for you that you should be aware of. The first is building more durable and effective audience strategies. Google announces that they're going to be getting rid of similar audiences in 2023. And so, Guy, can you talk about what is a similar audience? Why do we care? And what the changes are coming up? Yeah, so similar audiences are the algorithmic way for Google to try to find your target person you want to send an ad to, whether it's on search or across the display network. And it sounds like, you know, it's, there's not a ton of information on this yet, but sounds like they're trying to balance privacy, but they're making, they're killing custom audiences for more powerful and durable custom audiences. Aha, Rebrand? powerful and durable. <laughs> this is a Dodge Ram of custom audiences? I mean, yeah, they're not killing. I mean, they're saying they're killing custom audiences only to, so custom audiences are dead, long live custom audiences. 
That's right. There you go. You heard it here first. We have no idea what's going on other than maybe this is just another silly rebrand, right? In the in the face of privacy. We'll see. I'd love to know how many of our listeners actually use custom audiences. If you use custom mm-hmm. audiences in your advertising, hashtag LHLMS. Because we that would be, you know what? That would be a really good show to talk through how that works and my best the is my guess is zero. Zero are zero? using it. Okay. More coming out of Mountain View. If you have not thought that we're going to talk about a Google Algo update, you are wrong. I think we're now like four shows in a row, five shows in a row about Google Algo updates. So there's a a spam update on 1019. Just be aware of this. This may impact your rankings if you have been using nefarious spam tactics, which if you have been probably in the legal industry, you're, you're, it's just rampant so see what chances happens. are you are using spam tactics or have in the past trying to say yes. yeah <laughs> or are about to or are about to or about to realize that what you've been doing has been spam all along or are frustrated that your competitors are using spam and beating you and so therefore are now using spam yourself or if you've been white hat all along maybe you will rise to the top as we've been promising for years someday and years, and years someday all right, Key, the other thing, and these are just, this is this is not official news yet, but I, I saw this on a post I did about the Clio Legal Trends report, rumblings about a new CRM coming out that is going to blow away all of the existing competitors. This came from a comment from uh, Stephanie Forbes, who is a big Salesforce fan. And I can also tell you by the uh, tone of her comments, not a big Clio fan, but talking about a brand new thing that is going to blow CRM out of the water coming out in January, currently in beta. Now, she's a former Morgan and Morgan marketing person. So maybe that will, uh, maybe you can connect those dots. So it's not, I mean, it's, not, it's coming out in January. So it's not Litify, which is built on Salesforce by Morgan and Morgan. Well, right. Maybe not built by Morgan and Morgan, but you know what I mean. So it's not that, unless it's like a new version of it or it's something totally new but hopefully not built on Salesforce. Exciting times. It's very it's cutthroat in this legal tech game. Listen, I, I did dig into Stephanie's background a little bit. She is a Salesforce cheerleader. So I will go 19 out of 20 that this will be built on Salesforce. Um, it's we'll not HubSpot. It is definitely not going to be HubSpot, which is what I would do if I had too much money and wanted to. Or maybe she's going to be. There's system. been a lot of uh, Salesforce HubSpot converts recently I've seen. Like there's a lot of LinkedIn handles saying I used to be a Salesforce person. I'm a HubSpot yep. person. So yes, and maybe and it's gonna be that. Bluntly, we're doing quite a bit of work helping people oh. make that jump. It's great. Okay, sponsored by HubSpot. So rumors coming to you clearly from Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. Um, and finally, Joy Hawkins, Darren Shaw talking about Google Local. Two two different points coming from two of our favorite people in the local SEO world. Guy, what do Joy and Darren have to say? That keywords in reviews and in Google Business Profile descriptions are not ranking factors. You can go check out what Joy has to say at Sterling Sky. Darren and I, I was really being facetious. You know, I love both of these people. Super smart. If you don't follow White Spark and Sterling Sky and Joy and Darren, you should. You know, Darren was saying, you can't put keywords in your description. And I was like, well, what about, I was like, is engagement a factor? Because if engagement's a factor, then arguably putting keywords that are bolded for this 
target search might draw someone's attention and draw a click, increasing click-through rate, and potentially that could be a ranking factor, but I was really being a smart aleck. Don't spam your reviews and descriptions with keywords. Yeah, so I mean, I think this is a common conversation and I would take a look at Joy's article. It's fascinating, okay? But those keywords do get bolded, right, in the results. So there's something there. There's a there there. Yeah, there's something going on there. All right. When we come back, we're going to be talking about a, a continuation on our conversation around metrics, talking about how to display the five most important marketing metrics. This is a comment from Will McLaughlin after the ad break. Smart firms use CallRail to track where every lead comes from. PPC, LSA, organic search, or even offline ads. CallRail tells you which channels drive your best leads. CallRail even integrates with your favorite CRM or practice management tools to help manage your leads and see the ROI on your marketing investments. Know exactly which marketing tools work. Plans start at 45 bucks a month. We recommend CallRail to every single one of our clients. Go to callrail.com slash lunch hour now and try it for free. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Welcome back. And now we would like to thank Will McLaughlin for his YouTube comments. See, if you leave comments on stuff, we will talk about them um, on the five most important marketing metrics video on YouTube, which of course we will link in the description. From Will, any recommendations of how to display this info? We're using Power BI, uh, kudos to you, by the way, Will, to pull in data from various sources, but some sample dashboards would be great to see. Conrad, yeah, this is a great question. Do you have examples of dashboards to share well, with Will? There's tons of examples of dashboards, and I think there, that's actually might be the problem. I have sat through, on behalf of law firms, I don't know how many vendor pitches about data and this display of data and the beautifulness of data. Some of the reporting is really fancy, right? There's all sorts of different tools that you can use to make these things automated and collected and pretty graphs and stuff like that. So beautiful. But we were talking about kind of the five most important metrics. Like if you're, and we talked about the importance of like a dashboard where you're, there's not so many metrics that you're going to fly into a mountain, but like and these are business metrics, so you're not looking at this stuff every single day. And I have a really low-tech answer for this. I think the, well, sorry, let, let me give my low-tech answer, and then I'll tell you why I think it's important to think through this this way. My low-tech answer is use Excel. And you should manually crunch this data for a couple of reasons. Number one, if these are really kind of big picture business metrics, you're not looking at these every week. If you're looking at these every week, you're frenetic and you're zigging and zagging far too often and you're missing the forest for the trees. 
And so it's not like this is the labor involved in putting together these pieces of data warrants the labor required to A, automate the process, and B, when you do automate that process and build all this data together, you've got to keep that thing up and running, right? Which is difficult. We do this for all of our clients and it is a, we have a full-time person. This is all they do is they maintain the connections between different systems. You've got CallRail, you've got Google Ads, you've got Google Analytics, you've got your intake management software, you've got your matter management software, maybe there's billing involved in all of this. There's your social media accounts, like all of this stuff that you might want to look at when you're looking at the five most important metrics. So my answer is, A, the labor required to keep something up like that, like that up and running on the regular is probably not worth it. And B, and I think people miss this, when you have to actually go in and find the data and look at the data, it forces you to get more intimate with what that data is actually telling you, right? And so I need a better analogy on this, but if you imagine the oil temperature gauge on your car, right? And that's something that you do need to know about all the time if it goes wrong, because it's a problem, but you know a lot more about it if you go in and look at the engine and figure out why the oil temperature is hot. If you go and check the actual reservoir and figure out what's going on to make it hot, you actually know a lot more about that than just knowing that the oil temperature is too high. That might be an old school, maybe too old school for the audience, but you learn so much by putting this data together. And Guy, our own dashboard for the agency, you and I are big disciples of David C. Baker. Uh, he has his eight metrics to run an agency. We review them internally. I only calculate them once every quarter, right? Because these are big picture metrics. And I've been running this off Excel for, I don't know, since 2014, 15. And it means that every quarter I go in and I spend two hours pulling data together and I always find something that I want to dig deeper into. And I think there's value in that. So I agree with you on the value of uh, kind of this idea of rolling up your sleeves, your data sleeves and diving in and understand the numbers better. You know, And I think for 99% of our audience, I think all of everything you said is right on point. But poor Will over here on YouTube. He's, <laughs> he has asked us, about, he's our, he's pulling the data in through Power BI. So, I mean, if he's using Power BI, I think he's pretty sophisticated. Sure. He's pulling the data in. And, and again, Will, sorry, we've already, you've already uh, graced us with your comment, but maybe we need a little bit of clarifying follow-ups. Uh, you can hashtag us. But I think what he wants to know is, is like, you know, can you show me some specific examples of stuff that is in there? And, you know, I don't want to revisit the uh, metrics that we talked about last time. No. But I think in this context, as he's talking Power BI and pulling data sources in, here's some things I'd be pulling in, right? Accounting metrics, like if you use QuickBooks online, I'd pull that in. Uh, I'd pull in all the stuff Conrad's talking about, all those front-end marketing metrics. I'd pull in your CRM data for sure. And then that's the great thing. Something like Power BI, you can start layering that data on top of each other. But but again, and this is the thing that Conrad pointed out, and we deal with this a ton too. It's the data hygiene, the data maintenance. It's keeping all everything working properly. That's a whole job. I mean, there are you know companies that just do that. They just pull the data together, keep the data clean. And so you got to be careful, you know, classic garbage in, garbage out. But I think for most people, Conrad's right. You can be low tech. You can copy and paste from those various sources into a spreadsheet. But if you're more sophisticated, I think for me, it's you know, it's really the um, it's the maintenance and the cleaning, and then the, the insights. But something like Power BI, 
super, super powerful. And Power BI, if you get the more data you give it that's clean, it'll start actually giving you automated insights and stuff. So you can, uh, it'll, it's the AI is learning and it will give you some pretty good insights if you're doing that. I, so before we move on, I want to I want to make a I think the point that that I have missed on this, which is a really good point for everyone who's listening. Will is creating his own data. He's not relying on his marketing agency to tell him how good his marketing is working. He's not relying on a CRM system with with pre built graphs because those systems rarely have all of the things. So either they rarely have all of the things integral in that system in order to create the meaningful business data. Or B, and more nefariously, they're run by scumbag agencies who try and lie to you about how good they're actually doing, right? And so I love this concept that you're building your own data. On the software side, you know, you mentioned Power BI. There's Tableau, which is probably overkill and overexpense. Uh, that's kind of one of the, the most well-known business intelligence and data visualization software out there that's based in Seattle. Looker. Looker. Domo. We use NinjaCat for automated reporting. So there's there's plenty of stuff out there that you can use this for. But I, I love, and I don't want to miss that that really important point that he's running his own data, right? And I think that's that's an important function that those law firms that are moving from being a lawyer to running a business need to do. He's a data company that happens to practice law. Wow. Whoa. That's, that, Whoa. Sounds like a, that sounds like a, like the, the tagline of a new CRM software. Oh. <laughs> Built on Salesforce. <laughs> All right. We love getting these comments and questions on YouTube and everywhere else. Please do keep them coming. Thanks again, Will. And um, if you do have follow-ups, please do let us know. Let's take a break. All right, Key. Last week, we talked about the Clear Legal Trends Report data. And one of the things that was very interesting to me, where there seemed to be some level of dissonance, was the number four thing that people wanted when they were thinking about hiring a lawyer that was important to them, their impact. Number four, after things like reviews, was alternate billing types, right? We're not looking for that traditional hourly engagement. And so that was the fourth most important thing that people were considering when they were hiring a lawyer. And Cleo mentioned, and, and I believe their verbiage was only 37% of law firms offer flat fee billing. And I bluntly thought 37% was a lot higher than I would have thought. And they, Cleo kind of talked it down as being only, but I was, I, I was some level of encouragement about that. But I wanted a little role play here. Can you play the lawyer who is stuck? I mean, you have these conversations all the time. I'm having them right now. You are the lawyer stuck in your hourly rate business model, and you do not want to hear about this garbage about flat fee billing, right? Right. Well, and you know, first of all, we know PI lawyers are like, this is a waste of my time because we're contingency fees. But we're gonna th we're gonna talk about transaction, hourly rate billing, different billing model. I mean, it'd be interesting. Yep. I don't I don't think PI is ripe for disruption on contingency fee, but maybe it is. No, no. Well, you know, I know, the... I know, I know you're going to get to just wait, hold your thought. Wait, but, All right. but you know, I'll I thought about, that. but I thought of, I thought about this even in our conversations about pricing, right? Like you and I get on this show and we're like, oh, inflation's up, demand's up, raise your prices. You know, the Leo Trends report says you're underpriced and, Oh, it's just so easy to go out to all your clients and be like, hey, JK, everything now is 10%, 15%, 25%, whatever you're raising it to, higher. And I think this is true of the business model issue too, right? We're like, oh yeah, these people don't want 
hourly rates. They want to hire lawyers to hire the solutions. And, and I'm going to role play. I'm going to be the lawyer. So Conrad, I've been doing this for 10,000 years, as it says on my website. I've been practicing law. Combined experience, baby. <laughs> right. And I've been, we've been doing hourly billing for since I can remember. We've been doing hourly billing since uh, when Rome was still the empire of the world. <laughs> I don't even know how to start having these conversations. Right. So, Guy, my friendly lawyer, who yes, occasionally you do function as my lawyer, um, which I appreciate. <laughs> but um, on the hourly thing, the reality is the market is moving, Guy. So there's kind of two layers of this. Number one is the market is moving and this is an opportunity for you to get ahead of where everyone else is on that hourly billing. Because people, the consumer does not like the hourly rate. So, so I just go to them and I'm just like, look, how do you want to pay me? How would you prefer to pay me, consumer? I, I think that is probably a bad idea because we actually <laughs> already know, we already know that the consumer prefers to pay you on a fixed rate. Okay. And there are a couple of things that you need to think about this. What is the value that you're bringing to this issue? Right. What is their upside and what is their downside? And there's, if you want to, if you want to spend a lot of time, Gee or dear listener, listen to Blair ends. Uh, he talks a lot about value pricing. He has his own podcast with David Baker, but there's a lot of conversations around value pricing, but what is the value that you're delivering? And the other part of this one of the big reasons lawyers do not like working on this hourly rate is it's very hard to scope, right? So we're going to do X, right. Y, or Z and take family. Family classically goes from a an agreement, a separation agreement, to we're fighting over the silverware, right? And it's really hard to scope that, hey, we're going to start fighting over the silverware at the very, very beginning because most people don't think it's going to go as badly as it does. And so you need to be able to scope what you're going to do and put a box around those deliverables because the other component of this, and this is what consumers don't want to pay for, they don't want to pay for your unnecessary time, right? And in changing this model, you're actually going to become more efficient at delivering those services to your client because the more efficiency- We hope so. We hope so, right? Because um, otherwise, you know, so again, I'm going to be a skeptical lawyer. Go. I get, okay, now I understand what you mean. So let's take like the family law context. You're saying, yep. all right, I'm going to say, here's a package of divorce services, and it's X thousands of dollars, no matter how much time, how much or how little time I spend. That's and right. the client's going to say, that sounds great because I have predictable, I know how much it is. Now, there's another issue that you raise here, which is, you know, on my scoping side of the house, I'm like, okay, it's, I can, I know I'm going to be covered if I charge you 50 grand. Yep. But I can go online and get my divorce for, you know, 500 bucks. And so you got to distinguish why, which is your point about the value stuff, why you should spend way more for the lawyer because of all these things that are tied to the value, the perceived value of it. That's what you're saying? The other part of the scope, and I'll use family because it's so obvious to me, and it's such a good example. If this goes further, like if we come to an agreement with your spouse, your soon-to-be ex-spouse, and it falls within this package, and this is all we need to do is draw some documents and sign them and we're good, that's fine. But dear client, in many cases that doesn't happen, in which case we move on to kind of the next phase, right? And, and I'm gonna do everything I can 
to get you divorced within this one package, right? But if it does escalate, and that's going to be a function of me and you and your spouse and a lot of history, if it does escalate, we're going to be talking about, you know, a different layer of scope, right? And in doing so, if you can do that, dear lawyer, if you can do that, you will actually be incented to solve your client's problems more efficiently and more to their liking as opposed to drawing things out on the hourly rate. Now, I'm not suggesting that some of you deliberately, actually, I am suggesting some of you deliberately go out of your way to do unnecessary legal work um, that doesn't help your client. Stop doing that, right? (laughs) Deliver more for your client. And this will be a benefit both to you in terms of profitability if you can figure out how to do this more efficiently. And one of the things that is missing in legal, as you all know, and it is encouraged by the hourly rate, is this lack of efficiency. Yeah. And then uh, the other, you know, putting my back, my skeptical lawyer vest back on, I would say, but Conrad, I am bound that my fees must be reasonable. If I charge you, let's say that I charge you $50,000 for this divorce service, and it takes me one minute I just charged you, you know, I don't, I'm not going to math, a lot. It's 30 million an hour. <laughs> 30 million. Wow. See, that's your MBA. 30 million well, an hour. I, I may have moved to zero somewhere, but I think that's right. <laughs> it's a lot. Does, is that a violation of the prohibition on unreasonable fees? Sorry, um, it's 3 that's million a an debate hour. For, that's, that's a debate for a different day. But that's something to be that you're gonna have to think about and um, reconcile with your rules of professional conduct. I don't think that's a non-starter personally, and I'm not an expert on this area. So if you are, if you happen to be an expert on RPCs related to fees, hashtag LHLM, we'd love to hear from you. Well, let me let me play, and I I will caveat this with I am both not a lawyer or an ethicist. Um, I'm a marketer, which is the worst of all worlds, right? Um, well, I. <laughs> Maybe not me individually, but come on. We've talked about this a lot here. (laughs) Anyway, my point is, I think you're probably at much greater risk for overbilling for services that are unnecessary than you are for having a high hourly rate for a fixed project that gets solved quickly. I believe that to be the case, and I think the bar associations, by and large, would agree with that, not to mention so would consumers. Right. And then I, I wanted to bring it back because I told you to put a pin on it, but I was excluding contingency fee lawyers, but maybe they shouldn't be con- excluded because there are market players putting pressure on PI lawyers. No? Well, so this is, I mean, I appreciate the, the bringing it back around. The, the question is, and the PI lawyers, this is very much not a part of what they talk about, and perhaps that will change. Are shoppers of PI services going to become price sensitive? There's a, a company, law firm called Mighty, that is thumbing its nose at much of the PI industry, suggesting that that is the case, right? And I think the, I think it remains a question. The internet will bring more information to everyone over time. Whether that not that information is good and correct and accurate, CC the do your own research people, but people are spending more time on the internet. They will start to realize that personal injury, there is a price to personal injury. Right. And when those price pressures become uh, relevant, I don't know. We might not be there yet in terms of what consumers are looking for. I don't see that as persisting. Yeah. People will become increasingly intelligent about the price implications of hiring a different personal injury lawyer. 
Well, they haven't really had, yeah. So the market, they haven't really had a, another option, right? Um, it's very rare. So I, you know, raise my hand. I used to be a former plaintiff side PI lawyer. And I think it's very rare that you get PI firms competing on reducing their contingency yeah, fee. Absolutely. And it's, and it's probably one out of a thousand where the client asks about it, right? It'd be, you know, that's an interesting thing. Is that antitrust? Is that price fixing? That wow. all of the PI lawyers have agreed wow. to the interesting. same rate? Interesting. Interesting. Uh, uh, collusion uh, brought to you by right. Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. I never, uh, probably not, but um, anyway, point being, I, you know, is it the lack of market? Um, will consumers choose? I'll say this. My hunch is, yes, they will, because we already know they're shopping for lawyers in general, right? Like, this is the thing that lawyers can't stand in general, but plaintiff's lawyers in particular, they didn't sign up. They're talking to five different lawyers. Like, what? Huh? I think there's more um, lack of self-awareness on that. It is everyone signs up that I talk to, and yet we know that consumers are talking to lots of lawyers, so mathematically, you are wrong. Um, <laughs> it's just... It just it I mean, just I've heard is. the calls. I've heard the calls where, like, literally the potential clients like i'm still you know i'm gonna have to get back to you because i'm talking to three other lawyers right. today right right so let me tell so. you what's happening so my hunch is is that if it's like i'm talking to three other lawyers today and they're offering 10 percent less fee yeah <laughs> chances are they're probably gonna go that direction and the response and i've seen this because i've looked at a lot of the responses to mighty has been you get what you pay for right? And I'm this amazing lawyer and you're going to be missing out by taking the low cost provider, right? That's, that's the counterpoint to, to price, to the race to the bottom. Ironically, I am the best lawyer to ever do this and I'm charging no more than the worst lawyer who does it, right? Because yeah. they're charging the same fee. Yeah. Now they're going to say, well, I can get a better result. So my fee is bigger, right? That's what they're going to argue. So your winnings are bigger, right? Right. The winnings, yeah. your winnings are that's, bigger. That's the point, right? And that's that's the right. that's the roll of dice that the the client is taking with their lawyer selection. All right, let's move on from insulting the personal injury industry. We, we've now been uninvited to all of the speaking events for PI lawyers. Let's talk about the legal trends report, Guy. What do we have? Let's do it. And now it is time for the legal trends report minute, brought to you by our good friends at Clio. What do lawyers with great client relationships all have in common? They use cloud-based legal practice management software to run their law firms. There's no getting around it. The fact is, when it comes to client expectations, standards are higher than ever for lawyers. Proof is in the numbers. 88% of lawyers using cloud-based software report good relationships with clients. For firms not in the cloud, barely half can say the same. That gap is significant, and that also seems like very correlative versus causative. No, Conrad? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing as you read it. Hmm. And, and what Guy's saying here is, if you haven't gotten to a cloud-based CRM system for your clients, 
it is an indicator of the sickness within your law firm that you really don't care much about your clients. Because if you did, you would be going out of your way to make it easy to stay in touch and communicate with them. And I, I kind of painted that in a really negative light, but frankly, that's what this means. Like, get on it, people. Communication is important. Responsiveness is important. Being able to stay on top of multiple you know, relationships is important. You cannot do this outside of CRM. You just can't, right? I mean, you well, can do your best you with, don't, with Excel, et cetera, but it's hard. The thing is, too, is I, I remember when I first switched from practicing to starting this marketing thing, the resistance, like, you know, the, the story was technology, tools, they don't help you be a better lawyer. I'm a great lawyer and I use my pen and a yellow pad and that's it. But the thing that we said then and we say today, and I think this is, I think to, in fairness to the practice, a lot more lawyers have jumped on the bandwagon. The thing that lawyers that think that about the I'm a great lawyer, I don't need technology, they might be right in terms of actually practicing law. They might yeah. be right in terms of actually winning trials. I would disagree with that, but we'll even give it to them. You know, they're just, they don't okay. need any trial technology. They're doing it. They're just great at it. Okay. I agree with you. What you're not getting though is we're talking about the service aspect. That's we're right. talking about the, you know, the part that Conrad's mentioning responsiveness. And that this is the irony. There are lawyers that think that responsiveness has nothing to do with practicing law. <laughs> this is true. But again, it doesn't matter what you think. It's what your clients think, right? And again, right. here's the obvious example. Look at negative reviews on Google. You know what so many of them say? They didn't respond to me. So right. you might be the best lawyer, but it literally is published now on the internet forever that you are unresponsive and your former clients are looking at that and saying, I don't care if you're the best lawyer in town or maybe I do care, but man, I'm very frustrated to have to rely on you because you never tell me anything about what's going on. Get thee some CRM software. For more information on how cloud software creates better client relationships, download Clio's Legal Trends Report for free at clio.com forward slash trends. That's Clio spelled C-L-I-O dot com forward slash trends. Moving on to our new segment. Your favorite book, Guy. Tell us. My favorite book. Are you surprised that this is the book that I was going to review, Conrad? Uh, I'm not. Uh, let's talk about pandering. We're going we're gonna to make sure that David C. Baker gets know, right? copied on every single opportunity we can. You, you were fan personing, and now I'm going to fan person. Yep. Go. Go after Baker. And a little bit of background. Baker does not work in the legal industry. So it's That's interesting right. that you pick up a non-legal person as your favorite business book. Well, uh, this is my favorite business book. This is just a book that I really love. And Baker is a author and speaker that I really love. But to Conrad's point, Baker works with mostly small creative agencies, people like Conrad and I. However, the book, The Business of Expertise by David C. Baker, which is what I'm reviewing, is really talking about selling expertise, which is exactly what lawyers do. And the crossover, what, you're laughing. You don't I was just thinking about our last, our last conversation about right. the South Carolina bar yeah. and expertise.com. Right. 
Right. You can't, you can't say that you're you an expert. Right. But that is what you're selling. So this this episode Here's of Lunch Legal Marketing, not brought to you by any bar association, <laughs> but read the book, The Business of Expertise. Yes. The Business of Expertise. And a couple takeaways that we talk about all the time. I mean, it's a book about, a big part of the book is about positioning. But he does, he hits a lot of this stuff, not surprisingly, because I am such a fan, you'll see a lot of stuff in there that you're like, oh, I think maybe Guy had said that, but I'd give I, all credit to Baker. And so in the law, this is a, you know, they say, you, people say niche, people say niching down or the riches are in the niches. And I think that that's certainly part of it. But, you know, we still see this happen all the time where like, what do you do? Uh, I'm a personal injury lawyer. Well, there's no positioning there. What do you do? I'm a family law lawyer. Oh, no positioning at all. Versus, you know, an obvious one would be like, I'm a father's rights family lawyer handling just custody cases in Chicago. That's better positioning. He's got a bunch of different examples of how to test your positioning. Check out the book, five-star review from Guy. There's a bunch of stuff too in there. Like I think that will philosophically help lawyers understand that they're actually selling expertise and not lumber. Also, I think the other thing that's, that's safe, I should qualify this because again, I'm fan personing, but it really applies to entrepreneurs who sell expertise, right? So if you're a lawyer at a firm that's not in charge of the positioning, the marketing and the business development and that kind of stuff, it'll have less applicability. I still think there are some takeaways for you, but if you're hanging your own shingle, if you're out there on your own, trying to position yourself in a crowded legal market, this book is for you. Go get it. Read it. If you don't uh, take my word for it, you want a taste, go check out expertise.is. I think that's the companion site. Yeah, expertise.is. You'll get some good stuff there. Read. That's my review. Okay. I don't know. What else is supposed to be in a book report? You got, You were going to read us a passage to put us to bed towards the end oh, of the podcast. Oh, should I read a passage? All right. Do you, do you write in your passage. books? I do. This one I haven't yeah. written. I've got a lot of dog-eared pages. Dog-eared. I don't. Actually, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read something from the website. The three foundational chapters form the basis of the entire book. Experts develop insight by isolating patterns in data. See, lawyers are going to hear that and be like, what? No, I don't. Like, oh, yeah, you do. They convert those insights to wealth by crafting a unique positioning for which few available substitutes exist. That's the key. You are positioning yourself as one of the very few options. It's not fungible. Expertise is not like lumber. You can't swap it out. And their confidence grows as the marketplace embraces their application of expertise. I mean, that is it, folks. And to bring it full circle, we were talking about value pricing earlier. Baker's book's expensive because there's value in it, right? It is a fixed price. If you look at your normal books... Baker's is going to be more expensive because there's so much value in it. That is value pricing in a nutshell. With that, gushing toward David C. Baker, Guy and I are going to try and salvage what remains of our dignity and bid you adieu for another two weeks. We'll see you later. Thank you for listening to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. If you'd like more information about what you heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Follow Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, 
LinkedIn, and Instagram. And I'm going to try to stare right at you. In a creepy fashion? <laughs> Can someone walk in and slap Guy? Because he does look like, he looks like uh, a cross between the Greek god and uh, the monsters. All right, uh, ready? That was underhanded. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.